You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Joe Sacco, the uh, author, cartoonist of the uh, latest book that came out, The Tail End of 2009, uh, Footnotes in Gaza, as well as Palestine, Safe Area Garajda, and the other two books are totally jumping out of my brain. The well, there's The Fixer, the fixer um, and, and then there's Wars End. And they were combined by drawing and quarterly. So. Mm-hmm. And then there's also one book. There's also the two collections of earlier work, the uh, Notes yeah. of Defeatist and what was the Rock? But and I Roll? like it. But I like it. That's I was like, that didn't <laughs> doesn't sound right. For but I like it, girl. and like, nobody else did. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. No one bought it. Oh, <laughs> it didn't pay for your. Uh, I think you were talking about getting a patio or something at that point. Well. <laughs> Yeah, there's no patio. There's no patio based on that book. Uh, well, um, I enjoyed it. Um, Today, today for listeners, we're focusing on uh, footnotes in Gaza because uh, Joe was on, I guess you were on about three years ago. Uh, Colin Upton and I met with you after you had done a ridiculous TV interview with what I like to say is pretty much a snake oil salesman of a comic publisher. Um, it was uh, an unfortunate. Yeah, it was a thing. strange moment, strange and, TV interview. Yeah, I, I, I felt genuinely 
pretty bad for you having to go through <laughs> that. It's uh, well, I'll leave it anonymous for now. If folks really want to okay. know. I'll I'll tell them more <laughs> in person. Um, okay. I guess to start out with, one of the reasons uh, we're doing this is you're going to be in Toronto. Uh, was it the nineteenth? You're doing a talk there for the uh, University of Toronto. I I think the talk is on the seventeenth. On the seventeenth. Yeah. Next Thursday. There we go. Yes. Um, any particular focus on the talk of what you're going to be covering, or? Well, I guess it's uh, it's about comics and journalism. Uh, I've given talks like this before. What I've been trying to do over the last few talks is sort of change it around, update it, and hone it a little. Uh, it's it's along some of the same lines I've talked about before, but uh, I, I hope I'm going in certain different directions. I've I've become a bit more self-conscious about, you know, the theory behind it, if there is one. So um, hopefully the talk um, reflects some of that. I wonder how your approach has changed from your previous books, where all very current issues, what's going on now, where footnotes in Gaza, for me, as my background in school's history, it feels very much like something like I've read in school as far as a history books where you're really taking one particular situation which uh, for listeners it's uh, for lack of a term a massacre after the pullout of the Israeli forces um, from the um, Sinai or the oh, I can't well, like I mean, it wasn't, the Suez it wasn't Canal. during the pullout it, it was more during an occupation during the 1956 Suez War. Mm -hmm. Gaza was occupied by Israel, and it had been administered by the Egyptians, and uh, Israel was at war with with Egypt uh, in October '56. So they in um, November '56. So they um, captured the Gaza Strip for about four months until the Americans basically forced them to withdraw from areas that captured most of the areas that captured. So I guess my question now. That you got the background, is how did you approach this differently from your previous books, um, given that you have like a particular context that you're covering? Yeah, I mean, uh, like you mentioned, it was historical. I mean, I mean, history obviously plays a part as far as context goes in the other books I've done. Mm -hmm. But in this case, I was um, really trying to to uh, focus on something that happened, you know, almost 50 years ago at the time that I was doing the research. And, I mean, that entails, what that entails is a lot of sort of book research um, and archival research, which I hadn't, I hadn't done so much of before. I mean, I was living in New York when I, when I first sort of conceived the idea, so I went to the UN archives and, and poured through some of those things, seeing what I could find. But um, as much as it's obviously based on um, historical information, there wasn't much about this particular, these particular incidents. There was one mention in a uh, UN document talking about the large-scale killings of Palestinians in, in November of 1956 in two places in Gaza. And I, I think what intrigued me was how little there was in the history books about it. I mean, often you'd, you'd, I'd read a book about the Suez War, even a very good book, and it made a reference to these incidents, but only, only basically quoted the um, the document that I, you know, the one document. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so in this case, what was different is I did that sort of research, found there was almost nothing else that I could use, and th- the majority of the information I got was then from, from witnesses. So, um, and that is, on, in, some, in a way, that's basically journalistic work. I mean, you're, you're interviewing people who lived through those events, you're, try, you're trying to make sense of, you know, you, you interview one person, you get a, a sort of an overview, and then you interview another person, and you realize, okay, this is where the stories match up, this is where they conflict, and, you know, you interview a dozen, a score, you know, mm-hmm. 40 people, 50 people, whatever it is, and you try to sort of get uh, an arc to the story of what actually happened. So there was, there was some research, there was, I mean, there was a fair amount of research that I did, there were also a couple of Israeli researchers. I got to go through Israeli archives to find out some things, you know, from that point of view. And then there was a lot of, like, on-the-ground work trying to look up people, trying to find people who witnessed these things. And a lot of that is kind of, seems like, really piecing together when you're dealing with kind of oral history of how does it make sense together, how do these parts go together, and yeah. how are things yeah, exactly. remembered. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the the UN document uh, basically, uh, in one case, presented this is the Palestinian version, this is the Israeli version, and in another incident, this is the Palestinian version, this is the Israeli version. This is what we surmise. And you know, my feeling is that there are people still alive who went through it. Ask them. I mean, if this is this is a, a conflict that's been going on for a long time, that's very has been closely examined from many angles. So frankly, it was a surprise to me that no one had put, or no one in the West, I should say. Yeah. There are a couple of local, a local historians who tried to to put it together, but and you no one. Go ahead. Yeah, I say you mentioned that in the book at one point where there's someone that's kind of doing similar research to what you were doing. Yeah, and there so were a couple you're... of people, you know, one in each of the towns I was looking at, and some of the information was very good. I, I talked to both of those men. Uh, they had done it, you know, obviously out of a, a desire to just uh, to record what happened. And their general overview really helped me out. So I couldn't say I, I trusted all their information. I mean, I had, to, I had to find out my own, you know, through my own methods and, and decide if I thought they were putting an emphasis on certain things or, or, or reporting things that were fact that were probably hearsay, you know, that sort of stuff.
one of the things I really latched on with the book was kind of it all it felt fit of response. I think it was at the Churchill quote. Maybe I got the wrong person, but you know, one death is a tragedy. X amount of deaths is a stat. And right. this, I don't and, know and, who made that quote, but yeah. Um, this seems like really responding to that of um, how you really nuance it and break it down to each incident and um, really covering it in such a minute detail. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the idea was to sort of, as you said, break it down. Um, it's sort of like anatomy, mm-hmm. an anatomy of a massacre, basically. How it played out. Uh, what happened especially in the case of Rafa, where there's kind of a beginning, middle, and end to it, you could sort of trace all its component parts from many different directions. And, you know, that's... Like you say, I mean, when you read 275 people were killed, uh, according to the UN, in one place, and 111 in in another, those are just numbers in a way, but then when you find out what actually happened, suddenly it becomes real. And that's, you know, my desire is to make it real. For the reader, I think the one of the big successes in that is how you covered the schoolyard um, massacre, and I think that. Can you talk a little bit about that situation? Yeah, this was in Rafa. Um, it was in the refugee camp in town of Rafa, which is along the Egyptian border. Um, this now, this I'll, just to back up for a second, there was a, a context of a. A, a guerrilla war being fought by by Palestinian guerrillas against Israel and, and counterattacks and this sort of thing. And when the Israelis were in Gaza, they decided to get rid of this guerrilla problem once and for all. So they were screening for guerrillas and also for Palestinian soldiers who'd been in the Egyptian army. These these you know the Palestinians had obviously slipped back into civilian clothes and gone back to their families. So the Israelis called all military age men and basically you can say that's age 15, 16, and up, to gather in, uh, especially in one particular place, in a, in a school yard um, in Rafa, and they, they sort of made this announcement by loudspeaker. So the men began to go in that direction, and as they were going, uh, some Israeli soldiers fired upon them, they were being beaten, and... Uh, you know, basically terrorized, and when they were forced through the school gate, there were soldiers who were hitting them uh, with large, large sticks uh, or bars, probably wooden, wooden, like a bat, probably something like that. And then they were made to stand or made to sit um, in the schoolyard, and there was a process of trying to screen the people, which took many hours. Uh, and eventually they were released. Uh, the Israelis captured, you know, a couple of hundred people they thought might be associated with the guerrillas or might be soldiers, and took them to Israel. And meanwhile, the people in the schoolyard uh, basically were afraid to go back through that gate I mentioned, mm-hmm. and so they they busted down the school wall and and ran back to their homes. And in, in the course of this whole day. Uh, 111 people were killed. 111 Palestinians were killed. It's quite unimaginable from from my own personal context. 
<laughs> well, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these things go on all over the world at all times, and they go on yeah. today. So, so yeah, I wish it was unimaginable, but um, uh, it's not. Within creating this work, um, you're kind of also responding to what's happening presently, right? Uh, yes, because I was there. You know, I mean, I'm there. I was there in Gaza doing research. But obviously, Gaza was uh, in the middle of the second Intifada at the time, and uh, there was still fighting going on. And so a lot of things were happening while I was doing the research in present time. Uh, in Rafah, in particular, what was going on was, was the demolition of homes along the Egyptian border, uh, because the Israelis were, uh, were saying that uh, there were tunnels, and there are tunnels, leading into Egypt, uh, which goods were being smuggled in, some weapons were being smuggled in, and Isra the Israelis were destroying homes. They claimed that uh, were the piers or the, the points of entry or exit of the tunnels, or they were destroying homes they claimed that they were receiving fire from, uh, you know, gunfire from, while they were destroying these homes. So what I saw was large-scale, I mean, basically... Uh, destroying row after row of homes it didn't it didn't look like they were singling out particular homes as as much as it looked like they were just destroying row after row after row of homes and making that buffer zone to the border wider and wider it seemed like uh like clear cutting but in the context well, of tearing <laughs> down homes word that's an interesting word i mean it seemed it certainly seemed like it because you wouldn't see these you wouldn't see really isolated palestinian homes that had been had been left where the israelis determined no one's firing from this home and there's no tunnel from that home mm -hmm. i mean it was just row after row slowly but surely was being was being cleared away from the border row after row of homes when i was there maybe 800 some homes had already been demolished and when the israelis finally left gaza uh, physically, because uh, they left that area now, uh, probably 1,500 homes had been destroyed, something like that. How do you, for your own kind of well-being, and you don't have to get this too much if you don't want to, um, kind of how do you respond when you take in a lot of trauma from others when doing this research? Well, the research itself, um, you know, I mean, you behave, I won't say coldly, I mean, you, you are listening, you are sort of absorbing what people are telling you, and some of it is very painful to listen to, because it obviously caused these people so much pain, but you're, very, you're being very professional about mm -hmm. it. I mean, you're, you're trying to get to the heart of something, so you sort of switch something off in your head, that, that part of you that is going to get emotional or is, you know, tends to get that way, and it's like, okay, so... They called you on the loudspeaker, so how did you run? Where did you run? Okay, you got beaten. So where did you get beaten? You know, how did that happen? Were you against the wall? Did they make you stand against the wall? I mean, you're, you're, you're constantly sort of trying to tease out the information, and it doesn't, it doesn't help you if you're getting so wrapped up in the individual parts that you're just going to fall apart. So you, you do the interview, and you get the information, and then you go on to the next interview. So whatever you've heard before, no matter how much trauma has been imparted by someone, you're going on to the next interview, and you've just got to concentrate on that. Mm -hmm. So over the course of a day, you might talk to five people about very similar sorts of things, and on some level, you hear it over and over and over again, and it begins to be deadened. 
in your yeah. which actually works in your favor because then you become you're, you're not caught up in the story as much as really trying to get to the truth you're trying to basically corral the person to stick to the subject you you, you know obviously it's a we're talking about memories 50 years ago and people are going back and forth in the story and you're trying to you know get them to tell it chronologically if at all possible there's so much to concentrate on that you don't have time to really assess your own reaction to the information. It's really when you're back, uh, you know, months later, even years later when you're drawing that stuff, I find that it really begins to hit me on some other level. And I think that's because of the very act of drawing. I yeah. mean, drawing, drawing isn't like you've written something down and then you can move, move on completely. When, when you're drawing something you kind of have to inhabit everything you draw, especially if it's a human figure. You've, you've got to think about someone raising their arm to deflect a blow, and you have to think about someone raising a, a bat to hit someone over the head. You've got to think about that stuff. You've got to, you, you sort of do the motions yourself, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so you yeah. know how the shoulder raises and all that sort of thing. And that's when it's sort of that's when it's sort of physically, um, it physically uh, seeps into you what you've heard. And that's, that, that's harder. In some ways, drawing years later, a couple of years later, three, four years later, after I've heard these stories, it's harder than actually hearing them. One thing I found really interesting in within the cartooning um, is your way of um, portraying different people. One I found very striking was at a lot of points where these really soldiers really didn't have eyes. Mm -hmm. I found you do a lot of shadowing um, or just how the helmet's tilted. I'm just wondering the choice of that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a that's a good point. Um, I drew, I drew, I could draw some soldiers' eyes when I understood the emotion that they were experiencing at the time. Like I say, you're trying to inhabit. Mm -hmm. So if there was... The, the people who were clubbing Palestinians as they came through the school gate, I can't imagine to do that kind of duty. Um, I, I, I sort of imagined a certain sadism. So it was easier to sort of, easier to sort of think about sadism and, and do that. To, to draw, if, if there was if there was a soldier who um, was trying to say let's say protect a Palestinian from something which happened in certain cases like from his own men in in, in some cases or was having a, a dialogue with uh, someone's in someone's home that he was searching you, you begin you think okay this person has a has some sort of empathy or sympathy for for the people he he's dealing with right now. So you understand how to draw those eyes or that face. What I couldn't really understand was the average person, not, not the ones that are going out of their way to be somehow kind and not the ones that are going out of their way to be somehow cruel, but the average, average soldier who are very normal people like you and me who are doing that sort of thing. And I didn't know exactly what they were thinking and how they were doing what they were doing. And so I couldn't really draw that. I didn't want to make any assumptions about what they were feeling or thinking or experiencing. And it's funny you, should, you ask that question because it, 
it's made me want to, I mean, now what I'm interested in, I mean, I'm always interested in history, but mm-hmm. ultimately you realize there's some point where history ends and psychology begins. <laughs> and that's the point I'm interested in because I realized I didn't understand that. I can sort of describe what happened on that day, but what is going through those soldiers' minds is what actually interests me now. Well, and you see, that's funny because I was looking at it from a different angle. I I was looking at it as as a specific technique of how to characterize figures. So if you if you take out the eyes, you really pull out a lot of the humanity in in that person. You pull out the humanity. Yeah, without the eyes, you you, you don't see as much as the uh, the person as a human, or not so human, but just how they're interacting is very different from the other person who does have eyes. Well, I mean, uh, this is something I probably will bring up in Toronto, because it wasn't like I was thinking of it at the time, Mm -hmm. but if you take uh, Goya's painting, The Third of May, I don't know if you're familiar with it. No. It's of a French firing squad shooting uh, unarmed Spanish men. There's that very famous figure, the, the man in the white shirt with his arms outstretched, he's about to be shot. The French firing squad also, you don't see their faces at all. All you see is their uniform. They've got their backs turned to the viewer, and they're firing. And, and, and Goya's point is that, you know, you concentrate on the victim. You see the victim's yeah. faces. The, the, the perpetrators, it's just a machine. It's just sort of a, a machine with a human organic machine with guns, but you don't, you don't get any idea of any of these soldiers being individuals. Now, obviously in my work, I'm much more concerned with the victims, unarmed men, you know, being clubbed or shot. I'm much more concerned with them than with the perpetrators. That's, that's you know, that's true because I'm concentrating on the victims as far as the story goes. But I didn't have Goya's idea quite in mind. <laughs> I wasn't thinking in terms of, oh, I'm going to make this into an inhuman machine. Mm-hmm. I honestly, I wondered about those men. I do think they're normal men. I don't think there's anything particularly... I mean, I bet those men tried to forget what they did and just went back to their lives. I think it's a human mechanism of turning things on and turning things off, or something about us that can do that. The reason I didn't draw their eyes wasn't to make them inhuman or to dehumanize them in some way. is because I didn't understand them. It's it's interesting how different things can be di- interpreted different ways. Right. Um, because of your work, um, specifically in the Gaza...
I, I have some questions about current day stuff going on. Um, specifically, um, maybe if, and, and this may be too much to cover right now, um, because I mean, with the Gaza, there's a big influence of the Muslim Brotherhood, right? Well, Hamas, which I mean, has its roots in the Muslim Brotherhood. And so, I'm curious if you have any comments on what's been going on in in Egypt, in and Egypt. just any thoughts of what you see happening in the future. Well, my first my first response to what's going on in Egypt is is joy. Mm -hmm. Is I'm glad that uh, it's it's wonderful to see a people who who were basically written off as the so-called Arab street that, you know, has no influence and no power uh, actually doing this. I mean, I thought it was amazing. I, I thought there's a lesson to be learned in, in, in our, you know, democracy uh, by what the Egyptians did. In fact, I th sometimes, I, I mean, I sort of think that perhaps what happened in Wisconsin was inspired by <laughs> what happened in Egypt. Because mm -hmm. with the Egyptians... It was a, it was a really it was a bottom up thing. I mean, the, the 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 genius of that whole thing was there was no one at the front. It was it was a very collective moment. Yeah. And it was a joyful thing to see. I mean, look how Americans respond to things. We we say, um, we we put all our hopes in a in a leader or a politician like Barack Obama. It's like he is the person who's going to change everything. Whereas when you look at the Egyptians. They changed everything. I mean, from change, below, yeah. and that's to me that's an, a great inspiration. So more power to them. <laughs> that's all I can say. <laughs> and of course, they've got they've got to sort things out. Nothing's really clear there yet. Uh, they've got a big problem because the military has so many assets in Egypt. Has has so they've got so many vested interests. The military in the Egyptian economy. That now, how do you unravel that? I'm not sure if that's going to, you know, how that's all going to work out. But my initial response is, you know, great, wonderful. And, and you know, Hamas in, in Gaza, uh, you know, perhaps they think that this means there, there's going to be an easing of the blockade from the Egyptian side, because it's not just the Israelis that are blockading mm -hmm. Gaza. It had, it had been the Mubarak regime that has making sure the blockade is kept tight, because there's a whole border yeah. Egyptian Gazan border that's also uh, uh, more or less uh, very, you know, it's very secured. Um, but perhaps it, it could be a lesson not just to Hamas but also to the Palestine Authority that people still can have power. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pleased about Hamas rule in Gaza. Um, I understand what led to it, and you know, there's a context behind it. But you know, they put their cronies in. And they were quite violent when they um, when they uh, threw out the Palestine Authority. I mean, it seems like people were executed when they took over. And you know, they're forcing a lot of their own ideas down people's throats. Um, so I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not a fan of Hamas. I hope the what's going on in Egypt will have a and Tunisia has a positive effect throughout the whole Middle East. And I, you know, and I hope it has a positive effect on, on people in North America. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why it was good to see people in Wisconsin, they actually decided to physically occupy a space. They probably saw what would happen in Tahrir Square in, in Cairo and said, um, maybe we can do this sort of thing ourselves. Maybe that's what democracy is. And the, and the frightening thing didn't really do much. <laughs> 
It's what? I, it, it, I don't know how much the, the Wisconsin stuff really changed anything, unfortunately. it's just Well, I mean, obviously the governor there, Walker, ran through his provision anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, to me, you, you're always going to have these people ramming through their provisions and ignoring the people. But it's, when people recognize they have power, hopefully that's something that they can build on. You know, they, it's, it's, it's movements from below that matter. Yeah. It's Walker's, you know, some people will look at Walker as an element for bad. Some people will look at Barack Obama as an element for good. But ultimately, people like this, on some level, are beholden to some of the very same interests. You know, so it's, yeah. it's, I think it's pressure from below that matters. It's, I mean, I'm really, putting it politely, America frightens me. <laughs> well, you don't even live here. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's just the uh, we don't really have to get into it. It's just the political dichotomy there. It's just I I I can't understand it. Just how vicious it is, I guess. So. Well, yeah. I mean, it's um, it, it seems to, it, ever since Reagan, I mean, it's just tending toward the right. Yeah. Um, the the Democratic Party is also tending toward the right, and you can't really look at. I, I think at some point people looked at the Democrats as, as people who could perhaps hold the line, but they don't even seem to be doing that. They seem to be sort of uh, steering to the right. Perhaps they think to, because otherwise, without them, it'll, it'll totally go that way. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I, I feel like no one's really sticking up uh, for a lot of common people. Oh. That's, that's my take on it. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's what another story me. altogether. <laughs> yeah. Um, back to your work. What is your next thing you're working on, if you can talk about that at all? Yeah, I'm, do, I'm actually doing something about America now. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, and it's, it's, it's a book I'm doing with a journalist named Chris Hedges, and he, he's writing. Um, we're, we're both doing the reporting together, so he's doing. Um, he's sort of leading the reporting. Um, I'm drawing comics to go with it, and I'm drawing illustrations to go with it. But it's about post-industrial America or, or pockets in America that are really. I mean, they've gone down the whirlpool, like mm-hmm. places like Hamden, New Jersey, or the coal mining areas of West Virginia. And we're going to go to a Native American reservation, and and you know. Places like this, and uh, we've been to a couple of these places, and we're going to go to a couple more. So I'm doing some of that reporting this year, and hopefully we'll finish this project this year too. Oh, that it's a exciting. shorter project. I I don't want to tackle anything as long as footnotes in Gaza for it's, some time or or ever again. Well, it's your biggest work, isn't it? As yeah, one solitary it, unit. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh it's yeah it's almost <laughs> 400 pages and. I don't know, you know, the thing about comics, any cartoonist can tell you, um, if you're actually putting some effort into each page, it's, it's a hell of a slow process. So when you reach a certain age, you know, you begin to think, oh, how many more of these do I have in yeah. me? And every, every one has to be something you really think is worth your time. Mm-hmm. Because, well, I mean, to put it bluntly, time is running out. <laughs> Are you, and there is there a collection coming out? I seem to remember hearing something of your shorter works, like the the stuff you did about Iraq and uh, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a there's a book of my shorter journalism pieces that were in magazines or anthologies or various places that that have never been collected. 
yeah, the Iraq stories are in there. Uh, stories about a story about Chechen refugees, a story about African migrants trying to get to Europe, a story about poverty in India. Oh, I haven't I read the one India of, one. Yeah, I was in India last year, and I did a story for a French magazine. It hasn't appeared in English yet. So, I mean, a lot of these different stories are um, uh, will be will be in this book. I don't know; it'd be probably be about 160 pages or so. Well, I look forward to it. I always enjoy your work. and oh, uh, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today, Joe. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure, Robert.
Thank you.